Hello and welcome to the Flying Frisbee podcast with me, Dominic Frisbee. And today I am in New Orleans and I'm sitting in New Orleans with Lynn Alden, who writes a fantastic newsletter and has just published her first book. Yes. Congratulations. Tell us what the book is. Why did you write it? So it's called Broken Money. And I wrote it because I wanted to kind of catalog the last five years of research I've done around primarily around money systems and around some certain aspects of economics that are specifically tied to money. So it covers, in my view, the, the, the past, present, and potential future of money. And where it diverges from a number of other books is that it, it both in terms of the past and looking forward, it looks primarily through the lens of technology. So a lot of times you look at monetary history, you'll get a lot of detail around political decisions and geopolitical things that are happening. Whereas I focus on the technological innovations that happened from, you know, the dawn of civilization up till the present that made certain forms of money kind of take off and what their implications were once they took off. Well, we're singing from the same song sheet, as I've said many a time, money is technology. Here's a question for you. We can argue about this. What is the greatest financial technology, the greatest fintech ever invented? Bitcoin? No. The coin? The coin, Yeah. You can, yeah, that's a good one. It's a, it's it's funny because a lot of people don't even think of certain things as technology, but they all are. So the coin is a type of technology. Paper is mm-hmm. was an important monetary technology. Even book binding. So so certain certain improvements in in how paper is used. Uh, the printing press, um, analog encryption techniques. So how to if you have a a physical paper that your is is a bill of exchange. How do you pr- protect that against mm-hmm. mercury in you know five hundred years ago? All of those things are money digital technology. Yeah. I mean, that's extraordinary. Just simple digital technology, and yeah. given that 99% of money or whatever it is is now digital. Yeah, I think a, a, a thing I focus on in the book is the importance of the telegraph and how yeah. that changed money, whereas we don't really think of the telegraph as a monetary technology, uh, but it ultimately is. It's one of the most profound impacts it had. Yeah, so it would have been 18, whatever it was, 50-something, and within a week of that first message going from Queen Victoria to whoever the US president was at the time, I forget. They, the, um, yeah, the first exchange rate was agreed between two parties who trusted each other, cable. And um, do you, you probably know what the figure is now, but like, with the exception of gold and Bitcoin, which are bearer assets, all other money is a promise of some kind. Yeah. So you know you've got that hierarchy of money and you've got gold and Bitcoin at the top. But I I don't know what the figure is, but if you think of how many text messages get sent between people each, whatever it is, each second, thousands of times more promises get sent in terms of, you know, between parties who trust each other relating some transaction of some kind. Yeah, it's funny how actually early that started to happen. Um, and so one of the sources I mentioned in the book was um, Money and the Mechanism of Exchange by Jevons uh, in 1875. And it's a surprisingly readable book. And he was cataloging, this is this is shortly after the telegraph, um, and a lot of instruments were still paper at the time, but the combination of paper and telegraph, he was talking about how hyper-efficient the financial system had become, mm-hmm. how at the time it was very centered around London uh, in the whole kind of like Western global world, globally connected world. And he's talking all these examples about how much claims are always changing hands relative to how much gold's in the system. And on one, on one hand, he's talking about how just hyper-efficient this is. It's like amazing. And of course, you wouldn't have 
you know, if you have trade between the UK and America, you wouldn't have two streams of gold going in opposite directions. Mm -hmm. You'd have mostly paper and signals. And every once in a while, there might be a settlement transaction. And it's like, you know, this is marvelous. But he's also like, this thing is levered 20 to 1. There's 20 claims for every uh, unit of gold. And if just 5% of people show up in banking hours and want their gold back, it's not there. And mm -hmm. so he's like, there's like signs where this could be disastrous if they don't take this seriously. And of course, we all know how history unfolded. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I was going to say, that's what people don't understand about the derivative. Everyone goes, look at the size of the derivatives market. The whole thing's going to implode. But they don't understand that, you know, for every claim, there's a counterclaim. So a lot of it does balance itself out. The great expression with the Telegraph was two weeks to two days. Did you know that? I did not know. That was the advertising slogan, because previously to get a message from the UK to, to what was, it was actually in Ireland at the time, but that was part of the UK, to the States, it would take two weeks by boat. Uh, uh, yeah, sorry, two weeks to two minutes. Oh, yeah. And now it took two minutes, two weeks yeah. to two minutes. That's really interesting about the... Um, the early derivative system of 1875, it it always threatens to go tits up, and then sometimes it does go tits up, but it never quite goes it never quite goes totally tits up, and it never quite purges itself. It's not a it's always a bit mucky. I think because there's always the political will to do something different, and there's always generally when these goes tits up, as you say. Basically, there's always a transfer to a new system or a new technology that kind of supplaces it. So there's usually a recapitalization, a currency devaluation, move on to the next system. So it was it was the gold standard for several decades. Then you have the interwar era. Then you have the Bretton Woods system. It's basically a re-architected system. That broke actually shockingly quickly. Mm -hmm. uh, and then now this kind of the current system, you know, the euro dollar system, the petrodollar system, whatever you want to call it. And it's kind of slowly getting more and more imbalanced. Um, but they all kind of have that pattern where they recapitalize and then transfer to kind of the next system. Mm -hmm. They never kind of fully fall apart, at least on that global scale, at least so far. Let's talk about CBDCs. Um, I don't like them. You don't like them? I don't like them. They're evil. Yeah, I think so. Um, but are they coming? I mean, they're here in parts of China, uh, parts of Nigeria. I think the good news is that they've been not fully successful when deployed. Um, now we'll see what happens when they're deployed by more capitalized um, entities. But for example, Nigeria CBDC, they launched it, and for the first year it had like one percent adoption. Uh, they tried to phase out cash. They got riots, or you know, and then they uh, crypto adoption there. They you know they Bitcoin stable coins. They don't really break it down, but overall, you know, quote unquote crypto adoption there is like something like forty percent. It's one of the highest mm -hmm. in the world. So basically, people are buying private digital assets, not um, central bank digital currencies. Um, and that kind of shows the friction of trying to impose it. Um, I think more countries are going to issue them. Uh, Switzerland's looking very closely. Yeah. I read this week. And so is the, the European Union uh, in general, the, the, Euro, yeah, the, Euro, the Eurozone. Um, and one of the kind of the, the ways that I think they're going to do it is they phase it in alongside cash. They never say, okay, cash is out. Here's a CBDC. And the European, uh, the Eurozone is doing this where they say it's going to exist alongside cash. But if you study the history of kind of central bank, like the bank centralization that's happened over the past couple of centuries, it's always piecemeal. It's always like these small incremental changes and you phase out mm. things over time. So if you start introducing a CBDC, you can then lower 
uh, kind of cash withdrawal, like what is normal, how much cash banks have, have on hand, what kind of cash transactions are accepted until that kind of private transaction medium gets diminished more and more. And then in one time in the future, that's more easy to phase out. And I think that that's kind of the general pattern that they're going with is just kind of slowly replace one, replace one piece of the ship at a time until it's a different ship. Yeah. I think money is one of those things that works best when it's not imposed. Even the yep. new technologies, they have to be embraced by the free market because, and when it's when they're, you know, it's when lots of people choose this form of money, they usually choose it because it's the best form of money, I suppose. Yeah. And, you know, it was Aliates in Lydia was the guy who invented, who brought coins to the world. And then his son, the innovation of his son Croesus was to separate. There, there were electrum coins and he separated the gold and silver. And Croesus's coins, he effectively introduced the first biometallic bi standard. But the point about his coins is they weren't imposed. They were sought. Everyone wanted Croesus's coins across the Eastern Mediterranean because you knew that they were good. You knew that there was a certain amount of silver or a certain amount of gold in them. And yeah, they were sought after. Now, who's going to seek CBDCs. I just don't see it. I agree. That's the thing. No one's going to want, um, or at least, I, I think they, they they can only be introduced when compared with like when when combined with like a carrot of some sort. Like you can get UBI, but only in CBDC four. I think that's that's one of the mechanisms that they use. But it still means that no one's really desiring that type of money itself, especially when better alternatives exist. Matonis, John Matonis is a buddy of mine. He's a you know, Bitcoin OG. And he's, he always says um, CBDCs are the on-ramp to Bitcoin. In other words, I think you know, there's a lot of people who never got into Bitcoin because basically they couldn't be bothered to learn the tech. They were just, you know, they just didn't get around to wallets and all that kind of thing. And it, but, but with CBDCs, they'll learn it. But I, I kind of, I think he's got a point, but I also think there'll be a lot of people who are like, just won't want to learn this new tech. They'll just be resistant to it. And we all eventually learn email and text, but only because we benefited yeah. by it. But if, if you just have to learn the tech and you don't benefit by it, then why would, we, why would we bother? Yeah, I think people, different groups come to Bitcoin when it solves a problem for them. I mean, some people just view it as an investment. That's solving a problem. You're saying, how can I get better returns? And they see this and they think, well, I'll hold that. It, it, it's interesting. Other times, you know, people like it because they're in a jurisdiction that makes transactions hard. Maybe it solves international payments in an easier way for them than the international banking, correspondent banking does, especially if you're in certain jurisdictions. Uh, the Canadian... Small quantities. Yeah. And, and the Canadian truckers, um, a lot of people in Canada... Um, kind of woke up a little bit to Bitcoin when you started to see kind of outside of the rule of law freezing of bank accounts and see either people it happened to or people that just saw it happen and thought, okay, I, I think I get I get it now. I, mm -hmm. I've a number of people have told me like that's when they kind of woke up to that. You know, the day where you try to make a transaction and it says you can't make that transaction because you've already reached your beef quota for the week or something, whatever the case may be, or you can only buy one plane ticket a quarter. Uh, you've you've exceeded your limit on you know X Y Z. If people are restricted in payments, that that's a friction now. Like if if any of the downsides of of these CBDCs and things like that are imposed, or for example, people in developing countries with high inflation, 
they tend to get this quicker because it's more in their face. They're, they're, if their money supply is going up 20% a year, they learn a lot quicker than if, if in the developed world where money, money supply is going up on average 6 7 8% a year, we're getting boiled slowly, whereas for them it's more in their mm-hmm. face. And so I, I think you're right in the sense that people in the developed world, if things are just working fine, a lot of people just say, why do I even need Bitcoin? Why do I need to worry about this? I can make payments, no problems. The currency will hold itself well enough. I can invest into the S&P 500 or I can, you know, they have investments, they have payments and it just works. Um, but whenever people encounter friction is when I think they start finding Bitcoin interesting. I know there was increased adoption in Venezuela. Was there increased adoption in Turkey and Argentina the last year or so? Do you know? Uh, certainly, especially when you look at the combination of stable coins and Bitcoin. So from my understanding that, you know, a lot of people, they can't deal with the volatility. And if you're in Argentina, a stable coin is interesting to you because, you know, sure, it's centralized, but the central hub is outside of Argentina. And if you're trying to hold money for three months or six months or one month, that's more than sufficient. I mean, you have a risk of, you have counterparty risk, you can get rug pulled, but you say, well, this token's been around for X number of years and it's not in Argentina. So that's my intermediate term savings. And then what some percentage of them will do is hold something like Bitcoin for longer term. Uh, those that can withstand the volatility and say, I want to put capital away for three years, five years or longer. Um, and so the combination of those things tends to, it gets in Argentina, it gets in Nigeria, it gets in Turkey. I don't know about, say, year over year. I don't know how they compare this year compared to next year. I mean, prior year. But I do know that over the past several years, those have been huge markets for these. Any, any combination when you find high inflation and a reasonably tech-savvy, um, you know, internet-connected, well-educated um, citizenry, they tend to have very high uh, adoption of both Bitcoin and stablecoins. So... Let's talk about the future. We we talk CBDCs are one unfortunate part of the future. I, I just find CBDCs, they're so hypocritical. You know, particularly, in, I don't know how much you follow the UK, but we have a prime minister who, when he was chancellor, was going, I'm going to turn Britain into the, uh, you know, the, the crypto hub. It's the industry of the future. And at the same time, we have a financial conduct authority, which is our main regulator, which makes it really hard for UK citizens to buy Bitcoin. And it's really clamped down on it. And it, it's just so inconsistent. And in fact, that's one of the problems that CBDCs are going to have, is they're going to be run by government. And government is not very good at running things. But CBDCs are one part of the future. What about, let's talk about where financial technology is going and national currencies and Bitcoin. I'm Presuming you think Bitcoin is the currency of the future. Uh, yeah, that's that's certainly my preferred future. Um, uh, you know, I think that there's there's risks to that future. That's part of why I do the work I do. I want to I want to help Bitcoin as much as I can while it's, you know, it's, it's a teenager now. It's 15 years old almost, um, depending on wh- wh- when you define it from. And I want to give it its most successful chance to be big enough to kind of survive attacks that get levied against it. So I think we're going to see an upcoming kind of divergence between Bitcoin or, you know, stable coins, basically uh, jurisdictions being able to pierce other jurisdictions and offer them assets like dollars. Those are kind of the two free market emergent monies that are out there. And then you're going to have different silos trying to impose their currency from the top down. And that's a friction. And the, the, the worse that currency is, the more incentive people have to flee it and find these other options. So if it's in a developed country and it's kind of working well enough, you'll probably see a decent percentage, unfortunately, go with CBDC 
Whereas the the more poorly managed that is, the more people it's in their face, it's obvious. And so they gravitate towards what I think are, are better options. So the irony is the worse the worse the money you design for the citizens, the better off your citizens will become through embracing Bitcoin. That seems to be the pattern. I mean, you see, you know, uh, very most of the adoption is, is in countries that need it the most. I think the the part that makes me sad is when there's areas that um, have very high inflation or controls and stuff like that, but that they also don't have the tech savviness enough or the education. Mm. And so they end up not really adopting it super quickly, even though they're the ones that need it the most. That's that's the gap that I think is not filled enough. And there are there are groups around the world trying to fix that. It's just, you know, it's not uphill battle. How important is the Lightning Network? I mean, I think it's it's a glue that can connect a lot of Bitcoin layer twos. Um, I think that the vision for it evolves over time. People are finding more and more that ironically custodial lightning works better than non-custodial, which is a, a technical challenge. Um, I think just to explain what that means. So custodial means that you're relying on a, on a, a custodian, an entity to hold your mm-hmm. Bitcoin for you and you're getting more convenient, quicker payments from it. Whereas non-custodial means that kind of like, you know, you're holding your own keys, you're making your own payments. I think where the distinction comes from is that it's more important to self-custody your own savings because if someone takes your savings, you're in trouble. Whereas if you have a little bit of money on a custodial wallet and you're not getting blocked and all the payments are working fine, and you know there's a low risk if one day you're blocked or frozen, you say, well, okay, I'm not going to use that service anymore. Now I'll use non-custodial. So I think that the important thing there is the optionality that it provides. Um, and then there's... Recent technologies like eCash technologies, they've kind of resurrected 40-year-old cryptography, um, things like Cashew or Fediment. And I think that they're actually going to revitalize Lightning to some extent. They're, they're providing kind of like more distributed private custody options. So, for example, a, a, a place can set up its own little community bank, for example, um, rather than having all the custody in one big honeypot. You know, I think that that's... So overall, I think Lightning is important for Bitcoin. Um, I think Bitcoin doesn't need Lightning, but I think anything that makes Bitcoin easier to use for payments or savings, you know, make it kind of idiot-proof as much as possible, make it easy to self-custody, make it easy to pay with, makes the network stronger. We talked about this at lunch, um, and you mentioned there Bitcoin is a teenager now. Is it, for want of a better word, a boomer tech? Like, are the kids going to use Bitcoin? Well, I think the, the kids use Ethernet. They use TCP IP. They use USB. And those are, you know, 50, 50 years old and 25 years old. And I, I don't know exactly. They use uh, SMTP when they, whenever they use email. You know, they all these underlying protocols. I think Bitcoin's going to be like that. I think it's going to survive through. My kids don't use it. They don't read their emails. Well, they use. Well, I, yeah. I, I'm being stupid. I take so yeah, the point. I think that they're going to. I think it's one of those things where it might not be cool, but it can be cool again. And I think it's when alternatives fail is when you fall back to what's actually working, what's gaining liquidity, what's not changing its rules every five years, what's you know actually decentralized, what's not getting frozen or KYC or you know they all one hundred baggers out. Well, I think that that's whenever you have money breaking down. I mean, even in the Weimar, like anytime you have inflationary areas whether it's moderate or extreme, people generally turn to speculation. It's a way to kind of try to protect their purchasing power. Mm. Um, but I think that that comes in waves where once you get kind of rug pulled or scammed a couple of times, you eventually start, 
you know, being more mindful of that. I think it's a learning curve. I think human beings since forever have had the speculative urge and everyone dreams of winning the lottery and getting rich overnight and all the rest of it. But do you think sound money leads to less speculation? And the count, the reverse of that is the less sound the money, the more speculation you have. I think, yes, I, I think, yes. I don't think it eliminates speculation. I, I think it reduces it or it reduces malinvestment in general. And an example of that is, for example, in Egypt, they have 20% annual money supply growth. And I, I go there every year. Um, How come? Because uh, my husband's originally from Egypt. Ah, okay. Uh, so Good we, reason. It's, it's our second home. We go there every year. And so 20% annual money supply growth, uh, the stock market's not very good. Um, and so a lot of people invest in real estate. Uh, that's their savings of choice. Um, and you'll have at least a lot of empty homes just kind of there because people will rather have an empty home than hold the local currency in size. Um, and that could have been, it's better to save it in something sound. It's better to deploy that more productively. But people just think, it's get me out of the currency and I'll figure it out later. Um, so whether it's speculation or malinvestment, I, I think that that's your opportunity cost for doing those things is much higher when savings alone uh, can can store your wealth and slowly improve your wealth over time. It's kind of like how when interest rates are you know, 8%, the equity valuations tend to be a lot lower because your fertile rate for investing in equities is much higher, mm. um, especially real rates. So when you compare it to money supply growth or CPI inflation, whatever. So there, there is evidence that valuations go up in easy money environments that's booms and bubbles happen in easy money environments. But of course, it doesn't get eliminated by the mm. sound money environment. For sure, that's in the UK, real estate just became a savings vehicle. It was a way of keeping up with money. It was the only way that ordinary people could get exposure to money supply growth. It's interesting that it happened in Egypt as well. I guess it's happened everywhere. It happened. It's interesting. It happens in most places, like other than the US, where it happens a little bit less because in the US, we have kind of these really diverse and kind of always up into the right capital markets. So in the US, most of the, it's very equity focused. People focus on stocks, you know, they plow as much money as they can into equities. In most other countries, their equity market is less dynamic than the US. And so you tend to see higher real estate valuations. So when you look at Australia, Canada, most of Europe, China, um, large portions of Southeast Asia, a lot of them are more real estate focused, uh, which I think makes sense because the equity markets are just less yeah. liable overall. The S&P is America's housing market. Yeah. When, when I say that, like, you know, politicians will not let our housing market go down if they can help it. Yeah. Because it makes them unelectable. And I guess the S&P is, is the US equivalent of that. Yeah. Basically, we, the US has overvalued stocks and not that overvalued real estate, whereas the rest of the world has overvalued real estate and not, not that overvalued stocks. Yeah. Um. What about gold? What do you think about gold? What's the future of gold? Is it the horse? Is is the gold to money as the horse was to transport? Is its future just to be jewelry? Is it that? Has it got a future as insurance, or is it going to play a role in future government systems? I bizarrely think one thing that could save gold is oddly governments because they have lots of it. Yeah, I think that the insurance aspect or the reserve um, savings aspect still makes sense because if you think of what gold does now, it's kind of insurance against financial calamity. I think in the future, it could be similar, except it's insurance against internet problems, essentially. So something Bitcoin is heavily reliant on the fact that there is an uh, internet, that we're all connected, 
uh, that you, you know, you have access to the internet on a regular basis. And, you know, during periods where that becomes harder, um, I think gold is like a fallback. So I think it, you know, it might diminish in terms of, I think it'll, it's overall demonetization will probably continue to some degree. Uh, but both governments can try to recapitalize themselves with it. Uh, I think there's probably another good big cycle left in gold. Um, and then even on the personal level, I think it's still kind of viewed as like absolute disaster insurance. If, if something were to happen to your overall connectivity, it's kind of a backup money. Mm -hmm. Do you own some gold in the old portfolio? I do. Yeah. I, I'm one of those people that likes both Bitcoin and gold. I'm not, I don't really view them as enemies. I think Bitcoin is the future. I think it's it's going to outperform gold. Um, but I think that, um, especially in this upcoming cycle where Bitcoin is not really big enough yet and not liquid enough yet and not widespread enough yet, I think governments are still going to have, you know, the option to recapitalize with gold or if there were to be kind of a, a more inflationary issue, I think gold probably has another good run in it. Is technology destiny? Not necessarily, but I think it's, pretty deterministic. I think one of the things I argue in my book is I, I kind of take a pretty technological determinism view, which is that a lot of things kind of would be hard pressed to happen other ways than they have. So for example, certain political structures only make sense after the printing press or, you know, the, the bicycle is almost always going to come before the car because the car is a more complex bicycle. Um, the ability to send transactions quickly is always going to come before Bitcoin because doing fast settlements takes a lot more bandwidth and, and complexity and encryption. And so there's always going to be that that path dependence. And so I think that, that there, there's always certain gaps that you reach in technology. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think that technology plays at least not the only role, but I think it's a disproportionately big role in things. And... Therefore, how inevitable is Bitcoin's growth? I think it's a bullying outcome in the sense that if it's not somehow hacked or centralized in its early years, I think it becomes pretty inevitable. I, I think right now it's going through its testing phase where every possible attack is thrown at it. Every other possible crypto gets made to see if there's something you can do better. And as it just cycle after cycle shrugs off these attacks, it kind of proves itself to be highly robust. Um, and so avoiding certain tail risks, I, I think it just keeps taking market share. It's a pretty bullying outcome. You don't think some better coin is going to come along because it just doesn't have the network? I think the design space for sound money is pretty pretty narrow. Um, Adam Bax discussed this a lot where... <coughs> You know, there's, there's really only so much design space if you want to maximize decentralization while keeping it secure. You have to sacrifice other variables. And most other coins that come out, you know, kind of claim to do something faster and, and better and do more, but then they usually end up being more centralized. That's usually the trade-off. Mm -hmm. So I think that maybe in the long enough future, the challenge is that Bitcoin has to, has to get quantum resistant or something. There could be technological challenges along the way. But I think it's easier to upgrade an existing network effect than to try to build a whole new network effect against an extremely liquid, powerful network effect. Is Satoshi Nakamoto alive? My guess is yes, but I don't know. Um, Lynn, it's been a real pleasure talking to you, and you really know your onions. Here's a question for you. It's related to what we've been talking about. Of the plethora of religions that existed in 
um, ancient Mesopotamia thousands of years ago, why did Judaism survive and none of the others? Make you. And the answer is a technological way. Did it coincide with the writing in a certain way? Yeah. Yeah. Clever you. They were the only ones who wrote it down. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. And uh, the same can be said for Christianity against all the um, pagan religions in Northern Europe in the Dark Ages. Pagan religions are much better. They're much more fun. They've got better characters and so on. Christianity was the one that was written down and that's the one that persevered against oral. Um, Lynn, I, I, I love talking to you and I've, I've been, it's been a real pleasure meeting you. Tell us about your book. Uh, Broken Money. It's on Amazon. Uh, you can check it out. Uh, so far, it's, people seem to like it and it covers the past, present and future of money uh, through the lens of technology in an accessible way. So I think it's, um, it can change your mind on certain things. It kind of challenges you from whatever perspective you're reading it from, whether you like the current system, whether you like Bitcoin, whether you like gold. There's probably something in the book that challenges you or surprises you in some way. And how long did it take you to write? Uh, it was written in a year. It was actually pretty quick relative to its size, but um, it kind of came out quickly because by the time I decided to write it, it was like all in my head and came out. Okay. Quickly. I mean, it's the accumulation of yes. many years of yes. work. And uh, I subscribe to your newsletter. Tell us about your newsletter as well. Uh, LynnAlden.com. I provide uh, investment research, mostly kind of the big picture stuff, money, energy, that kind of thing. I have both a, a free public newsletter and then I have a low cost research subscription for people that are interested. Great stuff. Well, Lynn Alden, thank you very much. Thank you.